The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's a delight to be back with you again. This is week three, chapter two of how to understand and apply the Old Testament. This week, the chapter relates to literary units and text hierarchy. Text hierarchy sounds like a big term, but you understand what hierarchy is. There are certain elements that bear higher levels of influence on structure. And then there's other parts that are more dependent or subordinate. But we're not even going to deal with hierarchy today. All we're going to focus on is literary units. If you're teaching a Bible study, it means that unless you're going to cover 66 books in one week, you're going to have to focus in. And this chapter in the book is designed to help us understand where to start and where to end our unit. How do we, how do we decide? And some of it might seem completely intuitive and... Some of it might be a little surprising. So we're going to consider today how to determine the limits of a passage that you might teach or read for your benefit. Even in devotions, most Bible reading plans, even the one that I wrote, is based predominantly on chapter divisions. But as we're going to see, the chapters came very, very late in the history of the church. God didn't give us chapter divisions. The newest edition of the ESV comes in, that is the English Standard Version, comes in five or six volumes, giant, giant big volumes with lots of white space, beautiful print, and zero chapters and zero verse references. And that's how God gave us His Bible. And... So the New Testament authors will say, as it says somewhere in Isaiah. (laughs) But the chapters and verses are there in order to help us find our text more quickly. But they can also be a hindrance to actually understanding literary units. So to that end, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, that you've communicated in a way that is understandable and that is translatable, so that even we in this room, with our English Bibles in hand, can say we have the very Word of God. Thank you for godly men and women, generation after generation, who can devote themselves to things like Bible translation, Bible translation updating, in order that we can as English-only or English-dominant users, understand your book. So I pray that you would meet us today. We simply want to understand better how to grasp literary units as you give them to us. As you're speaking, not just full force, 
high octane with no structure, but you actually give us structure and logic and groupings of thought. And I pray that you'd help us get a better grasp on what that, how, how that can benefit our interpretation of your book. Through Jesus I pray, amen. We're only going to cover two things today. Key questions, I'll get that done in about 30 seconds, and then the rest of the day is focused on the basic rules for establishing literary units. So key questions, there's two. Number one, is there a clear beginning and end to your passage? You want to do your Bible reading? If you're willing to set aside the chapter divisions, where would you go and what would you do? Well, I would look at those nice headings that show up in my English translation. Well, those were added much later too, even much, much later than the chapter divisions. Every translation has their own headings. And so the ESV coming out in 2003, all new headings. The NIV, their latest edition, 2016, in the Zondervan, uh, the new Zondervan NIV Study Bible. Now it's called the NIV Biblical Theological Theology Study Bible. I did the notes on Zephaniah in there, and uh, I had to follow the headings <laughs> that someone else put in the translation. And I didn't want to put a heading where they put a heading. And so the headings are secondary. And we have to wrestle with the text. So are there, is there a clear beginning and end to your passage? Are there clues in the content, in the grammar, or in both that help clarify your passage's boundaries and then structure in between? And again, today, this morning, all we're going to be focusing on is boundaries. So let's consider some basic rules for establishing those boundaries, the literary units of a passage. Let me just check. I thought I had... Okay. Well, number one I've already been talking about. And that is, don't automatically follow an English translation's verse and chapter divisions. Now, here's some facts. Number one, the Jewish scribes probably began to separate verses during the age of the Talmud. We see already in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in a number of the uh, Hebrew texts, that there's spacing actually given between certain lines. So they're already thinking in groupings, but nothing is, nothing is numbered. But all of a sudden, when we get to the, um, the, the divisions aren't as clear. But when we get to the age of the Talmud, AD 135 up to 500, you remember that the Talmud contains two major divisions. This is a, a large Jewish authoritative document. And it includes the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. And then it includes the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. And so you get this expansive, multi-volume Jewish reflection on their Bible and on what other people had to say about their Bible. Well, within that, that period, 
we, we begin to have this division of verse references. But the numbers themselves were not added until the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin. That's when we first get actual verses put into our text. Number two, only in the 1200s do we get our chapter divisions. And there's people that have said that Stephen Langton must have been riding a horse. Like, why did you put it right there? Why is the break right there? You'll get massively long chapters, and then you'll get really skinny ones. What, what was going on in his head? But, but just know that our chapter divisions are the work, works of men. And the benefit is not for reading. The benefit is for finding. And if you use them for reading, as most of us do, just wanting to stay in the Word and it gives us a good amount of space to read, when you use them for reading, you may very well be missing something. You'll forget what you read yesterday, and you're supposed to know what you read yesterday, at least the last paragraph, in order to understand where you're at today's Bible reading. So it was very helpful today in the 9 a.m. service for Brother Tom Boyer, uh, Tom Boyer to say, now let's give a little context. And he gave us one verse. And he told us, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then, all of a sudden, we read the prayer that he made within that that unit, and that's chapter 2. But the division um, started the verse before, introduced us to where we're headed. So let's consider an example. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And... What do we know about the structure of Genesis 1? Be bold. Think, Genesis 1, what's it about? What do we know about its structure? It has a starting place. It has a starting place. Where is that starting place, Brother Rick? In the beginning. Okay. What else do we know about the structure? Seven days. Is there? Is there? Seven days in Genesis 1? How many say there's seven days in Genesis 1? Come on, be bold. Raise your hand if you think there's seven days in Genesis 1. Okay, let's look at the text. So we enter into Genesis 1, and verse 5, there was evening, there was morning, first day. Verse 8, there was evening, there was morning, second day. Verse, where are we at? Verse 13, evening and morning, third day. Verse 19, evening, morning, fourth day. We're pushing to the end of the chapter. We get to 23, evening, morning, fifth day, 31, evening, morning, sixth day, chapter break. Why didn't he just go three more verses? All of a sudden, then we move into chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work. And then the rest of the book, as you know, is, or you may know, is structured around these headings, these generations' headings. So it says in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Those headings 
introduce the units that follow. So chapter 2 verse 3 is actually the end of the first unit, and that's the end of day 7. That's the whole week. But it crossed our chapter division. Another example, Psalms 1 and 2. So why don't you open up, just turn in your Bibles over to Psalms 1 and 2. Few observations as we look at this text. Blessed is the man is Psalm 1-1. The very last verse of chapter 2, blessed are those who find refuge in him. Blessed is the man and blessed are those who find refuge in him. That frames Psalms 1 and 2. These blessed statements. Not only that, you get these, what they're called, catchwords. Yes, there's the repetition of blessing at the front of Psalm 1 and at the very backside of Psalm 2, but then we see all this interconnectedness. So we see, read in 1.1, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way, in the way of sinners. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And then in 2.12, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. So way is used in 1, way is used in Psalm 2. Or sit, Psalm 1.1. You can either sit in the seat of the scoffers, or you can be identified with chapter 2, verse 4, the one who sits in the heavens and laughs at people like the scoffers. So you're saying the Psalms were not divided? Or you couldn't tell originally that they were different Psalms? You, you can tell for most of the Psalms because they get headings. But Psalms 1 and 2 don't have a heading, very similar to Psalm 42 and 43. And the same type of catchphrases that show up in both psalms and, and appear to link these psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. That's Psalm 42, but it's also Psalm 43. And, and it suggests that even though we've got a break, it's very likely that when they were written, they were actually two parts of one psalm. Supposed to be understood together. That's what I'm proposing. Well, they are a collection of poems, and yet when there's no heading or concluding statement, it becomes possible that they were actually close, more closely tied together, and you'll, you'll see here in just a second. Here's another example. Meditate. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, verse 2, and on his law he meditates day and night, meditating, ruminating, pondering over God's book. That's one option in life. The other option is Psalm 2, verse 1. We wouldn't see it in our English text, but it's the exact same word when it says, Why do the nations rage and the people meditate, plot against God in vain? One group is pondering deeply over the book, meditating on the ways of God, the character of God, the deeds of God. The other group is pondering, meditating on how they can rebel against Him and confront Him and go against Him. But these same words are used that tie the two Psalms together. Or 
Psalm 1.6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 2.12, kiss the sun lest you perish in the way. Just all I'm doing is saying the boundaries between chapters aren't always as firmly fixed as we would like them to be. And just remember that the chapters themselves are relatively fresh additions to help us as readers find where we want to go. And with respect to inspiration, in the Psalms what we get is a giant scroll or its placement in a codex, a book. And the Psalms then, without numbers, you just move from Psalm to Psalm. And then there's headings or concluding statements that give the boundaries. But if you don't have those present, like we do in Psalm 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. If we don't have that, then all of a sudden, Psalms 1 and 2 Well, if the scribe decides to put a little space between the Psalms, it might look like a division, but if he just blends them because he recognizes how much framing there is, how much unity there is between the two Psalms in terminology and even in the blessed statement, blessed is the one who meditates on the law and blessed are those who find refuge in him. All of a sudden, it can inform our reading and influence our own meditation. It strikes me if if, uh, you were to go to Crossways and suggest to them that in their next edition of ESV, they ought to organize the Old Testament the way we taught it last week. Yes. Then they would say, not going to do it, you know, because there's a Reformation impulse at Crossway that we're not going to rejuggle the Word of God that way. With that in mind, it seems strange to me that our Protestant reformers got away with this, of, of chapter breaks and numbers. And it would seem to me that that would have been much more controversial in its day. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> so what's at stake is just the... Right. So the trick, the trick is that it still took so long. Even in the earliest stages of the New Testament, even at the completion of the Old Testament, they weren't adding the chapter, the chapter breaks and numbers. It was just one long flowing narrative, and there, and and that raises the issue: How were they establishing literary units? And We're just focusing on entry-level day hiking in here, but we could get to up to the level, and you you can read about it in my chapter, where you you enter in and you begin to see some of the clues in the Hebrew text that are are even distinct, that we don't even use in, in our English Bibles, that are giving signals for literary structure, that a good listener 
For example, the presence of and, almost every clause in the Hebrew Bible begins with the conjunction vav, which we usually translate and or but, but it can also be rendered in other ways. It's just a connector. It identifies that there's some relationship of connectivity between these two elements. And so you hear the, and all of a sudden you come to a clause that doesn't have the, and it arrests you as the reader. We call it ascendaton, the lack of any connection. And just the hearing of it in your ear would have been a signal about structure. Now, with respect to Brother Rick's question regarding the reformers, how did they get away with legitimating a Bible that had verses and I mean, weren't they adding to Scripture? I think it was very clear what was going on in a way that it's not clear today. We've missed it. I think for them, it was clear. We're helping you. We're trying to, um, as Martin Luther was stressing, get the Bible back into the hands of the common man. We're even going to affirm its German translation so that everyone can hear the Word of God. And we want you to be able to find your verses readily and quickly. And so an audience that was not raised on the book, how do you start them? Where do they go? And you, you start them by giving them quick, ready reference. You might put little tabs on the side of your Bible, like, where is Jonah? Well, there's no question that the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg changed the world of Scripture. And it also fixed many things, like the order of the Bible. And so I will tell you this, that just in the last six months, Crossway has published a brand new critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And in that New Testament, it places, directly after the book of Acts, the general letters. Not Paul's letters. It doesn't go Acts, Romans. In this New Testament, it goes Acts, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, then what? Romans. Because in the earliest Christian manuscripts of the New Testament, Paul's letters are not linked with Acts. What's linked with Acts are the general epistles, and then Paul's letters follow the book of Acts, and then always associated with Paul's letters is the book of Hebrews. And then Revelation comes at the end. And that's how they have this Bible structured. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, at least with a critical edition of a Greek text, Crossway's been willing to align with the, the earliest. They've been willing to publish something that is different from the norm, and yet that does align with the history of tradition. How about creating a Bible that actually aligns with what Jesus said his Bible was? Law, prophets, writings. There's hope. That's all I'm saying. There is hope. So, this is intriguing, and it could just be a mistake, not in the Bible, but in the history of tradition, or they're making a claim about interpretation. But in the 6th century, around the 500s, you have a Greek manuscript called Codex D. I mean, it's a book. And in that, in that codex, 
it introduces Paul's citation to Psalm 2 in the book of Acts with, as also it is written in the first psalm. But it's very clearly Acts 2.7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. It's Psalm 2 and yet there's at least one, well there's actually a handful, but this is the, the dominant codex that introduces that citation with the, it's the first psalm, not the second. So just keep in mind that the chapter and verse divisions are not a guide to reading as much as they're a guide to finding. Number two, remember that some multi-volume works in our English Bibles were single books in Jesus' Bible. You want to establish a literary unit, and I'm going to study a book. I'm going to preach a book. I wish some churches would understand what I'm about to say. We're going to dive in and just study the book of Nehemiah. Do you recognize that when you study the book of Nehemiah, you're only studying the second half of a book? Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, but we don't have it that way in our Bible. Let's consider. There's two groups that I'm referring to here. Number one, when Jews, the sages, the seers, the singers that were inspired by God, when they originally wrote the Hebrew Bible, it only had consonants. Only consonants. And they still pronounced all the vowels, but they just understood them. And then, much later, when they added the vowels, they didn't want to disrupt the sacred text, so they they created a system of vowels where they would put them either above the the consonant or below the consonant. But when when the Jews... Translating the Scripture in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they came in in the 300s and in the 200s B.C. to translate the Word of God into the language of the people. When they did that, Greek has vowels. And so all of a sudden, manuscripts that were this big doubled in size when you add the vowels. And that moved certain books bigger than they could hold on a scroll. Let's go pick up kings. Well, it used to be this big. Now it's like this big. What do we do with that? Well, let's get two. Because my son's helping me. And well, if, if my son was helping me, he'd be carrying the two. But um, <laughs> seven inches in one year, my boy. This is ridiculous. He's just getting big. <laughs> what do, what do, <laughs> I'm sorry, what would you say? Unfair. Yeah, thanks, John. <laughs> so, so we've got all these books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That's very different than First and Second Thessalonians. Just know that First and Second Thessalonians are two different letters. First and Second Samuel are just two volumes because carrying around the the lambskin was just too much for them after they added the vowels. It just made it too lengthy. So, we're we're talking about something different 
when we look at New Testament books, but those first and seconds in the Old Testament are one volume. In fact, even the Septuagint translator, Greek translation of the Old Testament, when he came to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, he said all of this is one book. And he called it First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kingdoms. Consider how the books are structured. You've got one long story from the monarchy's beginning to the monarchy's end. Second Kings ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah. After the exile of the northern kingdom had already happened. Before that, a united kingdom separated in the days of Solomon and then going all the way back through David to Saul, the very first king, which is where 1 Samuel chapter 8 begins. So 1 Samuel to Kings creates a single saga, which the Septuagint calls the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now, The natural sequel to Saul's death is David's lament over Saul's death. But Saul's death ends 1 Samuel, and David's lament of Saul's death begins 2 Samuel. It was just the natural place to... It was was a length decision, I think, but but they're all one story. 2 Samuel is devoted entirely to the person of Samuel. Sorry, is that right? 1 Samuel is devoted entirely, not 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel is devoted to Samuel's life. But Samuel dies at the end of 1 Samuel, which means Samuel didn't write Samuel. At least all of it. Because 2 Samuel doesn't include Samuel. It's not a story of him. Ultimately, I think it would have been better to call them Dave. 1 and 2 Dave. Because this is a, this is a story about King David. But 1 Kings divides right in the middle of the Elijah narratives. You get the second half of the Elijah narratives in 2 Kings. David comes to the end of his life at the end of 2 Samuel, but he doesn't die until the beginning of 1 Kings. So you're seeing that this is actually one big story. And when we consider word counts, it's generally about the same. So we've got 19,000 words from Samuel's birth to Saul's death, 15,800 words from Saul's death to the end of David's reign, 18,635 words from Solomon's rise to Ahab's death, and 17,348 words from Ahaziah to the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Once you extend the, the length of these books by adding the vowels, you've got to figure out how am I going to manage the amount. And so just keep that in mind. In Bible reading, in the Old Testament, even the book divisions that we have in our English Bible, they're the exact same books as in Jesus' Bible, but he doesn't distinguish First and Second Chronicles. It's just Chronicles. It's one, one book. Right. So let's go back to Old Testament times and the scrolls or the scrolls. Was there were there multiple scrolls? Did they I, mean, I know there's when you've been in a in a synagogue service that there are tools and markers and kind of bookmarks like Correct. So when they would get out the scrolls um, what are we looking for? Well, 
Today we, can, today we can have the Torah, all five books of Moses, on a single scroll. It's a hefty, it's a hefty piece of parchment. Um, and yet, it can still be all on one. But yes, we're talking about multiple scrolls. And the ancient libraries that we have found, and the Dead Sea Scrolls only support it, there can be... Um, whether separate jars in the Dead Sea Scrolls where there were separate scrolls but they were organized or even on a wall, catacombs or if you take it into the temples of the ancient world we have examples, they call them genizas which are sacred libraries that have been discovered and all of a sudden they enter into the, to a geniza, they discover it and it's just loaded with what we would think of as books but what they really are are scrolls. Like in Genesis 5, that we, 5, 1, that I just read, when it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Well, what it actually is, is this is the scroll. This is the scroll of the genealogy of Adam. Because we don't have books, aren't even created yet until the first century BC, first century AD. And then it's only in the 3rd and 4th century that books called codexes begin to become very public. And they become public because of the expansion of the Word of God. It's the Word of God that actually that, that, um, made the codex a thing of commonplace. But prior to that, prior to the 1st century, which is in the days of Jesus, that's the first time, probably past Jesus into the days of Paul, days of John, um, those are the very first days when codexes are even appearing. So you've got a piece of lambskin or... Did they what? Standardized divisions between the scrolls. When we... Um, the scrolls are always limited to books, to, to what we would consider a book of the Bible. And so they would have... A, a shorter scroll for certain books, and certain, at certain points they would collect, um, in, in different traditions, they would collect certain books together. Like the five short poetic books, they would group together. Ruth, um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. But Ezra and Nehemiah would have been on a single scroll. Now, let's consider Ezra and Nehemiah for a second, because this is the second group. Certain books that we count as more than one, that they count as, as one, but we can't identify specifically that it's an issue of length that changed it. And the first group would be Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the memoirs of these two significant figure, figures. They're written after... Ezra 6, when we get to Ezra 7, Ezra 7 and following is written in first person. Prior to that, it catches us up on the history of the last hundred years. But then we get, we, we get this um, memoir of Ezra, and then Nehemiah comes, and we get the memoirs of Nehemiah. But they were, they were bound together. They're telling the same story, and Ezra's going to show up as a character in Nehemiah chapter 8, and they're, they're serving side by side. Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor. The other 
interesting one, and we have to think about it in a little bit of a different way, but it's considered a single scroll, and that is the book of the 12 minor prophets. We read about this, I believe, even in the book of Acts. Notice how it's worded. Acts 7.42, God turned away, says Stephen, he gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, and then he cites the book of Amos. The book, singular, of the prophets. That in Jesus' day, the twelve guys are being viewed as a whole. And when we get to literary context, I'll talk a little bit more about this 12-chapter book, each chapter of which has its own chapters. But I say it's a little bit of a different idea because my understanding is that Micah wrote Micah, and Zephaniah wrote Zephaniah, and Zechariah wrote Zechariah. And yet, At the end of the history of the Old Testament age, in the days of Malachi, someone like Malachi took these prophets and stitched them together. And even the placement we're going to see in the first six of the prophets is not chronological. And it's built on the same type of catchphrases The relationship of the books is built on the same type of catchphrases that I identified in Psalm 1 and 2. That the end of Amos and the beginning of Obadiah have a link. That the end of Joel and the beginning of Amos have a link. That Hosea and Malachi, six books later, have a framing device that joins them together in thought. And so we're going to consider that when we get to literary context. But just to know that the book of the 12, like Jonah, like I mentioned last week, does Jonah, if you're in Jonah 1, is there a preceding literary context? Well, we say, no, it's the beginning of a book. Well, what about Obadiah? Because it's the book of the 12, they would be very naturally, without a chapter break and without a title, Jonah doesn't have a title in the, in the early manuscripts. You just move, like, from one book to the other. Boo, 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 boo. And what would the implications of that be for our reading? And so we'll, we'll talk more about that in literary context. Number three. Oh, yes. They understood they were all different prophets. And they knew that because the various prophetic books all have headings. And that identifies transition. And some of them even have conclusions. And so there's no, there's no question that there's a break. And that's why I say we have to think about the book of the Twelve a little bit more like the Psalms. Because it's one giant book, but it was written over a thousand-year period... We've got the Psalm of Mo- Psalm or Psalms of Moses. Psalm 90 is a Psalm of Moses, but Psalm 91 is untitled, potentially also being part of the Psalm of Moses. But Psalm 90 and 91, all the way back to roughly 1500 BC, and then moving us all the way down to the days of the post-exilic period, they're still writing Psalms. 
and they all make it into one book, and each psalm is independent, and yet its placement within literary flow... Remember, psalms is actually made up of five books. Each book ends with a, with a doxology. The end of book two says, now the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, suggesting that even books one and two had an independent existence in the days of David, before books three, four, and five were actually added to complete the whole book. And yet, even after the end of Psalm 72, thus are the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, ended, we get lots more David Psalms. Where did they come from if the prayers of David were all done? Well, there was more out there, and and it just filled out the rest of the book, all understood to be inspired by God. And there was an editor who was being guided by God even in the placement of certain psalms, just as there was an editor being guided by God in the placement of the twelve. But we'll talk more about that in literary context. So, we are... On letter C, number three, third rule. Look for recognizable beginning and ending markers. Now, think about spoken text and written text in English. If you're just in English literature, whether you're reading a newspaper or reading Tolkien, what... What kinds of things do you look for to know, okay, if I can just read one more page? You know, what tells you that? Why, why do you want to just, like, you've got a goal. You sit down at night, it's bedtime, and you're like, just, can I turn off the light? Just give me two more minutes. What's determining you want to get two more minutes of reading in? What signals are you looking for, and what are you looking for to know where to begin and where to end? Chapter division. So we've got these big headings that tell you, oh, if I can just get up to the end of chapter 3, then you know, I, I'll feel some closure. Or they'll leave you hanging. But, but there's a division there. What else? Paragraphs. So in English, we have something they don't have in the Hebrew text, and that is indentation to signal paragraph division. That's very helpful for us. And that's why, well, it's helpful so long as you know how to write. Kristen Kamau is one of my children's English teachers, and they're at the stage of what's a thesis statement. You know, in the paragraph, you need to have a complete thought in there. It needs to all be working together. But a a well-done paragraph should be able to stand on its own at one level, And yet it's also working within a a larger grouping, but we signal the divisions with these little indentation marks. What else? Did you say elevated? No, a character introduction. A character introduction. Yes, so think about how the book of Ruth opens. It takes several verses of extended discussion, narration, to just clarify who was Machlon and Chilion, how did they relate to Elimelech, Ruth, uh, Naomi's husband, um, that they died, where did Naomi and Orpah come from, 
and all of that, the character introduction, okay, this is the beginning. It's, it's providing a setting and, and the very structure, the very flow, the way it's set up tells me this is the beginning. Excellent. Even punctuation, a comma, a period, a semicolon, and just the a breathing space. What could signal a breathing space? Sela, okay. Meditate on this, or whatever it means. Meanwhile, all of a sudden it's, okay, meanwhile. So an actual word that gives us pause that says something's changing. All of a sudden, a shift in place, a shift in topic. These are all things that we grow up intuitively learning as signals for literature, beginning and end. Even quotation marks. Hebrew doesn't have quotation marks, but it helps identify Structure. Let's consider some of the markers for beginning and ending in Scripture. And all of these are elements you can find, and and most of it is absolutely intuitive. You do this already. Beginning markers in Scripture. A title. We get through chapter 2 of Habakkuk, and all of a sudden we read this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shugia note. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. And, and it's sitting there as a heading. When I look backwards, I know we weren't praying. So it's what follows. It's a, it's a title. An introductory formula. We've already seen them in, in Genesis. These are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. It occurs ten times in the book of Genesis giving a structure to the whole. Common words like, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel shows up in chapter 5, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 1, and at every instance, it doesn't have and in front of it, and it provides a launching point. So, a common beginninger or phrase... Word or phrase, thus says the Lord. That's just, hello, here it is. And we don't read, thus says the Lord in the New Testament. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And that shift is significant. But in the Old Testament, the prophets are, thus says the Lord, people. And so the beginning of their oracle is marked often by something like that. How about vocative address? What do I mean by vocative? What's evocative? Anybody? Reach back to the past. Okay, it can have, oh God, oh my mother. Oh, oh, it can have, oh, but it doesn't have to have, oh. What is the evocative in particular? What are we talking about? When you name someone. So you clarify, Paul, thank you for your answer. Now, when I said that, all of a sudden it gave clarity, and we could say, Jason came into the room, he walked up behind the lectern, he began to talk. I give three sentences, only the 
first included an explicit subject. The next one's included a pr- two pronouns. And I'm in the context of he went up to the lectern, he began to talk. If, if those are the only clauses I have, I have abs- actually communication has not been clear. So I need that antecedent reference, and often the antecedent reference is evocative. So it'll say, hear, O Israel, you shall do, you shall do, you shall do, you shall do. And in Deuteronomy, that can go on for chapters and chapters, the you's. And you say, well, who's the you? I just jumped in. Well, go backwards until you find that you identified, and it's Israel. The vocative helps give structure and clarify the boundaries of units. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That's a transition marker in Psalm 2. Whether it's the beginning of a brand new independent psalm or just the beginning of a new movement within a single thought, that's to be debatable. But the rhetorical question very clearly identifies a boundary. And we read it as such. Shifts in time, okay? Now, when Abraham was 90 years old, Genesis 17, it's, we're, 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 we've moved from the past up to a new moment in space and time. Shifts in lo- location. The people of Israel came into the wilderness of Zin. And that's Zoom 21. <laughs> Numbers 21. Sorry. Shifts in character or speaker. Movement from Eliphaz to Job to Elihu. The fact that the character is mentioned, it, it helps. It, it's just, it's, this is all intuitive, but it's something to keep in mind as you're reading your scripture. Shifts in topic. All of a sudden, we've had 39 chapters in Isaiah that have been dominated by a message of judgment, and chapter 40 comes in comfort. Comfort ye my people. All of a sudden, it, it, it like rises like light out of a very stormy night. It's dawn rising over the horizon. Shifts in genre from narrative to genealogy. The narrative of Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 is Tower of Babel. And then, now this is the genealogy of Shem. And then it goes on with a linear genealogy. A gave birth to B and other kids. B gave birth to C and other kids. C gave birth to D and other kids. And it takes us all the way to Abraham. But it's that shift from, you were just telling me a story, and all of a sudden we've, we've altered the very genre. That's a boundary marker. Shifts from poetry to prose. Ending markers. You can have a concluding formula like we do at the end of Hosea. Hosea ends, let the reader understand. And it just concludes the whole book saying, I'm assuming you're going to be listening to what I say and you need to take it seriously. A concluding formula. We see it in Genesis chapter 1. Six times there was evening, there was morning. There was evening, there was morning. There was evening, there was morning. Day one, day two, day three. In day six, it changes. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
In the ESV, you don't see the shift. The ESV just has the first day, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. But in the New American Standard, you see that it's, it's not that way. It's a first day, a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, the sixth day. And that change in the conclusion arrests the reader. But we're seeing the conclusion, which is ending day one, ending day two, ending day three. And then we track the conclusion markers, and all of a sudden we see there's a change when we get to day six. Attention is drawn to this climactic day. Poetic refrains like, you did not return to me. I brought all this judgment on you, but you didn't return to me. I did this to you, but you didn't return to me. Growing out of Leviticus 26, where God declares, you will be cursed if you do not obey. I'll bring this on you, and if you don't repent, I'll bring this more on you, and if you don't repent. Seven times seven, I'll increase the judgment, and if you don't repent. And Amos chapter 4 builds on that, saying, you didn't return when I brought judgment on you, so I brought more, and you didn't return. You didn't return, and every one of those provides a concluding refrain in the book. Summary statements like we find at the end of Leviticus chapter 7. Now everything that you've just heard in the last seven chapters, all those sacrifices, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the reparation offering. This is The law which the Lord commanded Moses. It's a final concluding statement that identifies, okay, I've got a boundary from from 1-1 all the way to the end of chapter 7 in Leviticus creates a unit. And it's that ending, what we would call a colophon, a final heading that doesn't anticipate what follows but reflects on what just came. There are, when we get to the translation chapter, I think that's chapter four in my book, we'll talk about both translation theory and the mere challenges of a group observing everything that might be important. And there's just, just challenges. Of all the contemporary translations, the only one that identifies the difference between the presence or absence of the definite article is the New American Standard. All the rest of them act as though it's not anything significant. Um, So we'll talk about translation, and hopefully Steve Blewett and Chris Tachik will be here, and they'll also help fill out some of the reflections. Right. They would have still been... That's exactly right. So all of these aren't just literary features, they're oral features. So that as the text is being proclaimed, the speaker, who may have even been reading the text in the years following Moses, reading the Torah, 
in the proclamation the very presence of these signals. In the same way that when we're reading to our children or our grandchildren, we're following signals that they don't quite... Like when I have my nine-year-olds read to me, they're not pausing where I want them to pause. But we're able to communicate that and they're able to hear. They're able to just sitting there coloring on the floor while dad's reading to them. They're able to identify structuring elements because these are all intuitive to a native speaker. That's right. That's right. I, I, I fully agree. The use of sources, uh, the preservation of oral materials, um, it's handled because the signals that we're overviewing here did provide groupings of thought, manageable groupings of thought that could then nurture memory, that could then in turn nurture the writing. So, we're getting close here. Treating literary units as wholes. So, this, if you recall last week when we talked about historical narrative, and I distinguished episodes from scenes, that's what we're talking about. We want to identify the larger unit and then read all the parts in relation to that larger unit. So, some features... It might sound similar, but here we're focused on issues of uh, content predominantly. Similarity of time period, like the time before the fall, that could provide a boundary for us. Similar location, Israel at Mount Sinai. They arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, they don't leave until Numbers 10. That, That provides, within the overarching story of Scripture, a literary context. Similar characters, like we're in the judgeship of Samson. Lots of different events happen, but but I do have a control in that this is the judgeship of Samson and not the judgeship of Gideon. Similar topics, like the tabernacle building instructions that run from Exodus 25 all the way up to Exodus 31. Just the very nature of those, and they shift between the different sphere. Now we're talking about... Um, the Ark of the Covenant. Now we're talking about what the furniture is within the holy place, not the most holy place, but things like the table of showbread or the menorah. Those are those more subunits, but the the mere fact that it's all dealing with the same issue, the tabernacle building plans, that's just a natural division marker. Poetic devices like alphabetic acrostics. Psalm 119 Just turn there for a second. Psalm 119, not all the acrostics are signaled by our English translations, but Psalm 119 is one of them, where you enter in and you see right above Psalm 119, it says Aleph. Then you move over to verse 9, Bait. Verse 17, Gimel. And what you see is that there's eight lines in each of these subunits. And you go through and you get 23, 22 different different units, 22 different, different sections that make up Psalm 119. 
And each of those units, what you don't see in the English text, is that each of those lines begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you get eight lines that begin with Aleph, eight lines that begin with Beit, eight lines that begin with Gimel. And, and so the, very, the text itself, even before somebody puts in into our English text, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav, Zion, that's not, you don't find those headings show up in the Hebrew text, but, but you can identify the units because all the verses, all the, the lines themselves begin with the same letter, and then it shifts. So accounting for poetic devices, and then similar genre, like when it says, and so they sang this song, well, that's, that's a framing device, a signal. Some rules for different genre. Here's where we're going to end for our day. Deal with scenes in light of whole episodes. So this is what we covered last week, so I'll just touch on this. If we go into Genesis 39 and you say, and I say, what was this about? Well, that's about Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife's temptation. So what's this passage about? Well, implicitly, there's a sermon here that says, guys, flee sexual uh, immorality. Well, if that's how you think, you've looked at the message of a scene and missed the message of the episode. If you looked at the broader features of the episode and looked for boundaries, what you're going to find is 39.2 opens, the Lord was with Joseph when he entered Egypt as a slave. He's not even at Potiphar's house yet, but the Lord was with him. Then the Lord was with him when he served Potiphar's house. Then that inter- that, so there's a, a beginning that is about the Lord being with Joseph. Then we enter in to this discussion of Potiphar's wife and her temptation of Joseph and his flight. But then the boundaries of the episode suggest to us this is about more than a man's flight from sexual immorality. Because it ends with, the Lord was with Joseph when Potiphar's wife unjustly accused him of sexual misconduct and had him thrown into prison. And then, the Lord was with Joseph during his extended incarceration, which is not about sexual immorality. So, what would be the significance of this as I'm reflecting on this? This is, the the issue of sexual immorality and fleeing it is merely an example of a greater message. And that greater message is this. The repetition helps frame the limits of the episode. The repetition highlights that this is less a passage about Joseph and sexual sexual purity and more about God being with certain individuals. The message isn't about Joseph, it's about God. Well, what type of people is God with? That's what the boundaries suggest we're supposed to read the internal data through the lens of. What type of people is God with? God is with those who consider pleasing Him to be a greater prize than pleasing the world's pleasures. The Lord is with those who flee from sin. One of the examples of which is sexual immorality. But it's much bigger than that. What type of people is God with? And do you want God to be with you? I think that's the the, the broader boundaries of the episode call us to maybe read 
a scene within that episode, when we read the scene in light of the whole, we realize that it's merely an example of, some, of, of a greater message. Prophetic sermons. We have paragraphs within greater oracles. So ask what the function of my passage is. Does my paragraph contribute to the primary exhortation or is it part of the motivation, whether through historical reflection, promise, or prediction? My example is from Deuteronomy 5. If you were to go to Deuteronomy 5, you're going to see a heading over the entire chapter that says, The Ten Commandments. But if you get inside chapter 5, what you realize is that, well, this isn't actually about the Ten Commandments. Yes, the Ten Commandments are listed, but this is not a story about the Ten Commandments. It actually starts in the present day. Moses is present saying, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I am speaking in your hearing this day, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. It starts with a directive in present time, 40 years after the Ten Commandments were given. 40 years after, Moses is saying, Today, listen to me. Then he says, 40 years ago, the Lord cut a covenant with you. But even there, when he mentions that God made a covenant and he includes the ten words, those ten words only supply a context for the people to cry out when they encounter the loud voice and they encounter the darkness and the thunder. It it provides a context for them to flee to Moses and say, you talk to God and then he'll talk to you and then you talk to us, but we don't want to hear from him anymore. The broader boundaries of the unit tell us this is not about the Ten Commandments. This is about Moses' mediatory role and that he speaks on behalf of God. That's why they need to listen to him. So then we come to the end of the chapter and it returns to listen to the voice of the Lord through Moses. The very reason the ten words are mentioned is to recall the context where Moses as the prophet is elevated as the the mouthpiece for the living God. So rather than putting a title that says, this is the Ten Commandments, no, this is about Moses' authority as the mouthpiece of God and the implications of that for the audience. Poetry in the Psalms. We have all those mini-paragraphs that shape a whole psalm. Those many paragraphs are called stanzas in poetry. At least that's one one thing that people call them. And so you just want to be mindful of where are the boundaries of my stanza and where are the boundaries of the whole poem. And if at all possible, preach a whole poem. Do a Bible study on a whole poem. But if it's Psalm 119, it might be a little hard to tackle it all in one week. So then make sure you focus on a stanza. Take each one of those letters, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Daleth. Take, take a unit or groups of those units, but, but fall within the boundaries. So in Psalm 1 in the ESV, they have three stanzas in Psalm 1 and four stanzas in Psalm 2. And you need to wrestle with it and say, is this, is, did, did the translator, because these stanzas aren't part of the Hebrew text, there might be signals, but you're going to see that the Bible translators don't all agree. 
And so you wrestle on your own saying, does this seem like they, they put the break where they should have? And then compare it with modern English translations. And so I thought, I'll do this with Psalm 1 and look what I found. ESV in Psalm 1 has three stanzas. It breaks it after, it puts one and two together, three and four together, five and six. New American Standard, no, there's only two stanzas. One through three and four through six. The Christian Standard Bible, they have three stanzas, but they group one through three, four and five and six. And all of this is simply to say, then you have the responsibility as a man and woman of the word, to wrestle deeply with the text itself, and then you seek to be faithful to our God. You have the exact same text that those Bible translators had in front of them. They might be looking at Hebrew, you're looking at English, but compare the various translations, and then you've got to make a call how you're going to structure it for your women's Bible study. Unpack your final metaphor. <laughs> if, I, if I am following diligently my instruction to turn the key in the ignition, but part about filling the gas tank has been reorganized, and now here's much later, I'm going to be sitting still for a long time. You've got your Bible in front of you, and you look, you look at the signals and the content, and it's okay to disagree with how the ESV translators did it. My, my statement is, if you're disagreeing with them, it might be best if you're saying, but I am agreeing with the New American Standard. Okay? You're on better grounds if you can find an English translation that has agreed with you if you're using English Bible only. Um, but wrestle. Use your heads. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. You, a lot of what we covered today was intuitive. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. Well, consider it. Look carefully at the content as you're looking for boundaries and let it inform your Bible reading. Thank you, friends. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.